0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 20th of June, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, US President Donald Trump appears on the verge of solving yet another problem, an accomplishment which would be more impressive if it wasn't yet another problem he caused. My guests Joy Lodico and Terry Stiasny will discuss this and the day's other top stories, including the latest British parliamentary drama amid the ongoing attempts to figure out what Brexit is actually going to look like, Canada officially becomes the second country in the world to leak legalize recreational marijuana, and... I'm from Wall Street. Do you think people really get rich playing by the rules? Is it too soon for a new Kevin Spacey movie? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. So, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Terry Stiasny, the author and journalist, and Joy Lodico, columnist at The Evening Standard. Welcome both. And we will start in Washington, where there are signs that even the Trump administration may be realising that when you find yourself having to explain exactly why you're not quite as bad as the Nazis, it may be time to rethink your approach. Reports suggest that Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen is drafting an order which will end the separation of families of migrants at the border. Other reports suggest President Donald Trump is going to sign either that or something similar, which would be in keeping with his standard practice of creating a crisis, uncreating the crisis, and then taking credit for solving the crisis. Um, Joy, first of all, uh, I have here written in the script, what sense does any of this make, which I realise is possibly a redundant (laughs) question already. But earlier this week, and it's, it's actually not that late in the week, we were being told that only Congress can solve this. Whereas now it turns out that other people than Congress can solve this. It's almost like they're making it up as they go along. It
1: is almost like they're making it up as they go along. Um, I mean, as you, you're right to say this is Donald Trump's problem. This is his policy in the first place. It's also the air of hostility that he wants to show to anybody who's trying to come into the country illegally. It is the extension of build the wall. Uh, and he knows at some level it's a vote winner for him because there are a huge number of documented immigrants who will come there and say, well, it's not fair. You know, why are people managing to get in through all these back routes? Um, But the minute you put the spotlight on what is actually happening, the minute you kind of have a row of kids lined up uh, behind, um, you know, chainmail fencing, uh, the world is disgusted. And Trump is actually somewhat sensitive to his um, uh, international appearance.
0: Um, Terry, this feels like I have a, a question I have asked several hundred times, and the answer so far has always turned out to have been no. But is it possible that we have reached the point where at least some Trump officials, and possibly even, as Joy suggests, Trump himself, are at some level vaguely embarrassed?
2: Um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, A, what this order, if it's signed today, actually does, and how much... Uh, you know, how much it changes anything. Uh, so I think we can be a bit sceptical of Trump trying to say, look, I'll sign a piece of paper and it'll all be fine. Uh, I think the other question is, what was the actually the source of the pressure that made people change their mind? I mean, we've seen sort of international outrage. We saw Theresa May in the House of Commons today saying that, you know, th- she thought that this was these images were deeply disturbing and wrong and not something we agree with. You know, he's quite happy to ignore most world leaders. Was it, you know, the feeling in Congress? Was it the fact that you had every living First Lady including apparently his own wife, lining up to say that this cannot be justified? I mean, was it the pressure from uh, from within his own party? Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how much of that we actually find out uh, put pressure on. it. Was it just simply, you know, the endless repetition on, on news channels and news presenters breaking down in tears on air when they have to describe what's actually going on? Um, yeah, I think he's obviously discovered that this uh, has backfired. But, you know, as as Joy was saying, it doesn't necessarily change the whole policy. I mean, when Trump was announcing that he was going to sign something later today, he said, well, but we still don't want millions of people coming to our borders. So there's a question of how they treat you know, the adults of these families when they arrive at the American border. And then beyond that, there's the question of what on earth do you do to deal with the situation in Mexico and Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala that's there's part of the reason that so many people are coming to the States at the moment? You know, there doesn't seem to be any kind of joined up policy whatsoever to try beyond trying to say, well, let's let's deter people and let's tell people they're not welcome here.
0: Uh, also worth noting that among the chorus of disapproval was pretty much every uh, allied government, several non-allied governments, including that of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Pope and Marine Le Pen. Uh, on, on the, on the, so when Marine Le Pen thinks you're, you're overdoing it a bit uh, on the hostility to undocumented migrants, again, it's probably time to take a bit of a look in the mirror. Uh, Joy, there is some suggestion that there is some uh, grand joined-up political strategy going on here whereby he will sign something which reverses this policy. He will use that as leverage to bounce through an absolutely dreadful immigration policy mm-hmm. which the Democrats will not vote for, and he can then blame the Democrats For screwing everything up.
1: For the whole whole breakdown of the system that he himself created. Um, Well, that kind of is US politics but in in a sense he's got to win them round with some better arguments Uh, and I think he may well be losing rather more substantially than he was this time and it sounds like a number of Republicans have turned against him. Having seen the effects... Of what happens on the ground. Now, the, the odd thing about Trump is that he's a very instinctive and kind of emotional politician, and he will—he will have tapped into uh, people's fear of outsiders and this idea that you know you're going to be infested and overrun. But there is a counter to that, which is people's natural uh, sympathy and desire to see children looked after. And so, one set of emotional responses is now, you know, being knocked out by the rather stronger one, and making sure that children are looked after. Um, and I don't think this will get forgotten come the real immigration bill, and that more and more of his side are now talking about how um, they would vote to get you know campaign against him when it came to um the midterms.
0: Um, Terry, Joy there raises uh, the spectre of the uh, the rebellious Republican, which I think has been a, a, a fantasy which has been fondly indulged by many Trump fans for the last couple of years. The idea that there will be this critical mass of decent GOP lawmakers who will stand and say we are the party, goddammit, of Reagan, Eisenhower and Lincoln. This is not who we are. This is not what we do. There is some occasional grumbling, or so far there has been occasional grumbling, followed by everybody bottling it, when it actually matters. There has been further of that occasional grumbling today. Uh, Spencer Cox, the Republican Lieutenant Governor of Utah, um, hasn't actually sort of resigned from the party in high dudgeon, but has made a a fairly bracing statement, which is unlikely to have endeared him to Donald Trump. But uh, again, it is the it is such a strange... Why do we not see people just saying, OK, I quit, I resign, I give up, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore?
2: Uh why does any politician, they want to, people want to stay in their jobs? I think what will ultimately move them is the threat of losing those jobs come the midterm elections. And once people start to think, you know, uh, just, you know, seeing the number of people saying, I'm phoning my senator about this, I'm phoning my congressman about this, I'm expressing my unhappiness about this, which tends to be, you know, one of the ways of, of kind of real grassroots campaigning, if people start to see their own political futures in otherwise strongly Republican areas being threatened by these kind of policies... You know, that's, you know, the Turkey's not voting for Christmas thing is is going to kick in, I think.
0: Okay, well, let's take a look now at the UK and the further stately progress of the well-oiled machine known as Brexit. The government appears today to have narrowly forestalled a rebellion by MPs who wanted to ensure that Parliament would retain the power to stop the UK leaving the EU without a deal in place. The malcontents were bought off with a promise from Prime Minister Theresa May that MPs would have a meaningful say. This appears to have bought the Prime Minister some time and has certainly presented the rest of us with what is likely to be a link Lengthy and extremely tedious argument about what meaningful actually means. Um, Joy, I, I'm not entirely sure what has happened today. I, w- I will go ahead and be honest enough to admit that. Um, I'm, I'm sh- I think a lot of people, including some um, uh, sophisticated political commentators,
1: are a little bit baffled <laughs> as to what's happened
0: today. Um, basically, Thank you there for, for like delineating me from the pack of sophisticated political commentators.
1: <laughs> There's um, it's this is Dominic Grieve, the um, former Attorney General who led the charge, like the Duke of York, took all these rebels with him Took Theresa May said, you know, this is the point at which we're going to vote you down on this one issue. We want, we Parliament want to say on the deal you bring back, bring bring back from Brussels. This has been bouncing between the Commons and the Lords, the the the, the upper chamber, uh, for a couple of weeks now. And at the final crunch point at which he could have asserted uh, what he wanted, uh, he said, actually, do you know what? I'm not even going to vote in favour of what I myself uh, have proposed and then the whole thing kind of collapsed and hit inertia this afternoon Um, it prompted one of the MPs Chris Bryant to put the question what is the meaning of meaning Uh, at the end of it it's oh um, god
0: Um, yeah well uh, Terry Dominic Grieve uh, the Duke of York enjoys uh, comparison there who has Literally, well, not literally, but metaphorically. Actually, not even. I don't know if it's even. We know what he's saying. He's halfway up the hill, and Mm. and there he stopped. Um, He says the sovereignty of Parliament has been acknowledged. Has it? Uh,
2: Only in part, and only it depends on whose interpretation of the sovereignty. I'm really sorry, this is how it's been working today. The government put out a statement, you know, shortly before the vote, saying, "Okay, this is what is going to happen." Our understanding of things are that if we come back. Uh, with no deal from Brussels in at the end of this year or the beginning of early next year, if uh, what we've put through is voted down, then the House of Parliament will uh, be able to amend what we vote on so that they would, you know... But some people say you can do that. Some people say you can't do that. They're leaving it ultimately possibly up to the Speaker of the House of Commons to decide, a man who uh, has said that he might stand down at some point that many MPs don't want in his job anymore. So we're kicking it further into the future just to see, you know, at some indefinable point there may or may not be something concrete that MPs can vote on and tell the government what they think of of the results that they've come back from uh, Brussels with. I mean, I think one of the best comments today in the debate was from uh, Hillary. Ben, uh, who's the chair of the uh, leaving the EU, the the, the committee on the backbench that scrutinises things. And he said, you know, when people ask us in the future what we did about Brexit, we'll, all we'll be able to say is we took note. You know, so that's great, you know. Um, I mean, even, even Donald Nick Grieve himself in his speech in which he kind of backed down, said, look, I think, you know, this whole debate we've all like lost our collective sanity. And I think, you know, I think he was wrong to back down. I think, you know, he was he was possibly right about you know, the political system losing its collective sanity. And you had this awful spectacle of dragging in really, really very ill and in one case in a a heavily pregnant MP who was due to give birth a few days ago. Everybody being dragged in to vote. They weren't, you know, they were so worried about this uh, until Dominic Grieve backed down that they didn't actually let MPs just be sort of voted through on the nod, which is what often happens. You know, they're dragging people actually out of their hospital beds to try and get this through. Imagine how you must feel if that, you know, they then back down and say, well, at some point in the future, we might let you have a say on, on what happens in a very, you know, vague procedural way.
0: Yes, I, I, I take note. I can do no. No other, uh, as you can imagine, Martin Luther saying. Um, The thing is, uh, Joy, Terry talks there about kicking the can a little bit further into the future. We we are running out of future into which to kick the can into, he said. That's that's another Uh, sentence for the scrapbook there. uh, But we're supposed to be leaving the EU in nine months, uh, um, which is quite soon.
1: It's Uh, even even stressing them out a little bit at the moment. um,
0: and, and, And it strikes me that nobody looks terrifically well prepared for this.
1: Um... I think they need to get this this bit of legislation wrapped up. I think what you're going to find out is there's another bit of legislation, which is the um, EU um, Withdrawal Implementation Bill, um, which I'm told will have a meaningful vote clause in that. So this is sort of still not sorted out. The customs union question has been kicked down the road. You keep kicking the can down the road. The thing is... Parliament is um, not out of the game. Parliament can, at some point, um, interject and c- cause a further problem. Um, so it, it is, however fast Theresa may tries to go at this point in time, Parliament will hold her up if they do not think she's done a good job. Um, meanwhile, over there in the negotiations with Brussels, they've they've now put out a new statement saying we're not thinking we did. We think this all might be beginning to look a little bit more like a no deal scenario. Um, it is the sort of central paradox of Brexit that there is no possible way of selling it both to the public parliament and uh, the EU uh, that makes any sense and it will be end up being the most ridiculous fudge and you already know the timelines we've got kind of transition implementation periods transition periods you know bridges into the future um the EU may well be a very different beast by the time we even actually get around to thinking about leaving it properly.
2: I mean, uh, you'd think, sorry, one one thing you'd think MPs and rebels or not would have learned from the process this far is get an absolute concrete commitment of what is going to happen. Don't leave it up to interpretation. Don't leave it up to the Speaker. Don't leave it up to Theresa May to decide. Get it in terms, in writing. But the job <laughs> gets something they can hold people to. Parliament has
1: accepted. Uh, That Brexit has to happen. Now, however many Remainers are sitting there sort of quietly wishing it wouldn't happen, they have had to accept that it's going to happen. And as a result, you've actually just got to let Theresa May do her job and fudge after fudge after fudge will occur until we can get some sort of solution. But I think the nation needs to see the words we have
0: left the EU. No, here's, here's your blue passport and your bent banana. Here's your, here's we've, we've, your blue passport. Now.
1: But it's also, they're, they're purely tokenistic. I think the resolution we're going to end up with is something that is so close to us being in the EU, but nominally we have left, uh, that makes it almost meaningless.
0: Uh, not for the first time, uh, Terry. It strikes me that the, the trick that the Remain campaign missed two years ago was, was that they didn't say, look, like the EU, don't like the EU, want to leave it, not want to leave it. You have got no idea how boring this will be. <laughs> <laughs> uh if, if if you vote for Brexit you are condemning the entire country to years and years and years uh of just excruciating tedium. Um what actually happens next, as we understand it, having having, having built it up there with a sort of uh, as excruciating well, to? As
2: them. we understand, um, now the, the amendment it goes back to the Lords again. The uh, bill on Brexit will t- finish its common stages before the end of the summer recess, which is uh, in a few weeks' time. So, you know the bill that says that we are going to leave will ultimately go through as you, as as joy was saying if yes, there are other votes coming up but the trouble is you know the likelihood of future rebellions kind of diminishes uh, once people have backed down a bit you know if you kind of got a vote got a victory over the government from the remainers point of view and you know got the momentum for it you think might more people might join if people seem to be leaving kind of geeing them up for another march halfway up the hill it's going to be harder i think
0: okay we're going to take a short break now you are listening to midori house with me andrew Mullet, along with terry stiasny and joy ludico coming up next the marijuana leaf forever <music>
3: Climb aboard Monocle's June issue, where we take a ride through the latest in planes, trains and automobiles, drivers included, in our annual transport survey. But first we set sail in Spain's medical ship, with its crew of doctors and nurses looking to help anyone waylaid by choppy seas. From there we hit a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, until we touch down in Toowoomba, where one Aussie family is transforming the town with an international airport. Then it's on to the tour bus to see what life is like on the road with the band. Surprisingly homely if you're on a night train coach, followed by a quick stop to meet the journos on the front line of Brexit. Now it's time to get high with a whistle-stop tour of the new elevated parks, popping up in London, Copenhagen and Sao Paulo, inspired of course by New York's Highline. Then we pop corks at Verona's Vin Italy. Head to the hills for a spot of camping with mountainware brand Amundsen Sports and its handsome team, and drop in at Marseille's oldest hardware shop, Mazar Emperor, to stock up on, well, pretty much anything and everything we need. Monocle's June issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com.
0: You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Miller. Still with me are Terry Stiasny and Joy Ladiko. And let us look now at Canada, whose daily newspaper cartoonist will presently all be wondering if there's any chance that all their competitors haven't had the same idea about redoing the national flag with the maple leaf replaced by the marijuana equivalent. Canada's Senate has passed the Cannabis Act, which makes Canada the second country after Uruguay to legalise marijuana for recreational use. It may be on sale as soon as September. Uh, Joy, the uh, big question first: Is this basically a good idea?
1: Oh, I think it's a marvellous idea, um, and we've spent sort of you know a century worth of legislation trying to ban a drug that has, you know, a limited effect on people. Uh, we've managed to create uh, black market dealing. We've managed to create criminal gangs, uh, and we've managed to put a load of you know people who are just trying to have a good time in prison. Um, I mean I'm very big on the cannabis versus alcohol argument. Alcohol will cause you far more damage in the long term uh, cause far more violence uh, and potentially disorder in the society than cannabis will.
0: Uh, certainly every police officer I've ever asked about this has said faced with the choice of sorting out a pub full of drunk football hooligans and a, a house full of like affably stoned hippies mm. they, they will take the latter any day <laughs> of the week uh, obviously. Uh, Terry there are reasonable concerns though I think which have been made obviously although that argument appears to have been lost in Canada, this will at least initially quite dramatically increase the use of marijuana generally, won't it? Uh, In Canada. In Canada, yes.
2: People sort of, you know, going to Canada on, on trips like people used to go to Amsterdam. Um... I heard the high commissioner on on the radio elsewhere today and she was saying, well, she didn't believe that it would because she said that some surveys had suggested that like 56% of Canadians had already used marijuana in some form or another. And uh, she was asked, well, was she personally going to be trying it? And she said, well, no, I've kind of been there, done that, don't really want to do it anymore. Uh, Didn't think that it was, I suppose, yeah, if anything becomes legally available that was previously, you know, not legally available and you can go into a shop or you can, you know, carry around, up to 30 grams of marijuana and or grow plants up to a certain amount for your own use, then, yeah, maybe well. I mean, it's fairly, you know, it's going to be high, highly regulated and I think the, the regulation is going to be very different in, in some parts of Canada from, from others, so according to whichever uh, province you happen to be in. Um, but, again, there are quite strict... Um, you know, quite strict rules on on who can use it. So you've got to be eighteen, um, and apparently also, you know, very heavy sentences. For for instance, selling selling drugs to like underage people, and the legal age is is going to be eighteen. So you know, it's it's not going to be necessarily the the simplest and easiest uh, thing to do. But yeah, there probably will be some some increase. I would have thought. Um, I mean, I guess one of the questions that people worry about, certainly in this country, is like the really strong, like the skunk, and the the kinds of you know. Very, very strong strains of cannabis that can have can have more damaging effects, but they, it seems to be, and I guess we'll see how it works in practice that they 've got these you know these strict rules there for a reason to try and keep it under control um-
0: Joy Terry, there raises the uh, the comparison of of Amsterdam, whose relative l- relatively liberal attitude to this sort of thing did turn it for many years into an absolutely magnetic destination for Europe's most boring people. Does mm. do, do, does, does Canada have to to brace itself for something of an influx of of people with bongos who uh, want who want to juggle in public spaces?
1: Very possibly. I mean, it's a lot colder, obviously, in Canada, and it's a lot further away, certainly, for the Europeans. Um, the thing is, in the but, US. But,
0: but, but people in America who want to wear sandals in public and juggle it's true, and, and play the bongos. There are
1: already uh, nine US states that uh, where it's legal to have recreational use uh, of cannabis. And also just literally walking through a number of the other states, just, the air is thick with it. I mean, they <laughs> they have basically given up the battle. I'm trying to remember, I can't remember this Amsterdam or Maastricht, but one of them, uh, started talking about the idea that you actually had to show a passport and be a native in order to um, buy cannabis. And they were actually fed up with the tourists because they created the bad smell around the place rather than the marijuana. Um, will it create a huge... I mean, it'll be great for the tourism industry, you know, good for Canada. Uh, it's already estimated it's going to make about 400 million in taxes, um, which will help. And then any extra tourism will also um, fill up the pot.
0: So... I mean, are are we witnessing here, Terry, a a, a general global shift in this? Is there a recognition that quite a lot of the money and expertise and energy that has been spent in the the war on drugs, if we're going to call it that, has been pretty much wasted?
2: Uh, Wasted again.
0: Well, (laughs) in in both senses of the...
2: Um, I think, I mean, we've, in the UK we've seen this really, it started with a discussion about uh, medical use of, of cannabis and, you know, in certain individual cases there's been a big outcry that people haven't been able to uh, get hold of drugs that, you know, work on, on children with severe epilepsy, for instance. It took a new turn when, you know, former leader of the Conservative Party, William Hague, now Lord Hague, somebody who, you know, when he was leader of the party had been totally in favour of zero tolerance, now also said, look, we have we have lost this war, and for somebody you know that senior in the Conservative Party to turn around and say, you know, what is the point of this shows that attitudes have changed over the last 20 years, and I think you know in lots of countries across Europe, the you know things are becoming the the rules are becoming more liberal, so there does there does seem to be you know a change, and people seem to be using that kind of the anti-prohibition argument, like why leave the drugs trade in the hands of, you know, gangsters and so forth when, you know, we, when we could take tax money from it and, and turn it into a legitimate business.
1: Or has somebody noted that um, what you do is you've been spent, you know, decades criminalising young black men for dealing drugs and now the white men in suits are going to come and take over the business. However, this, <laughs> there is this point of actually separating out this drug which causes relatively low effect, uh, relatively small effects compared to some other drugs, certainly not that addictive from the real class that are messing up this country big time. And you want to, so the kids who want to use marijuana should not be being exposed to the same dealers who then got all all sorts of other drugs in their kind of pockets. Um, You know, this is in Canada, you're just going to be going to a shop and buying it, um, you know, a regulated shop and buying it.
0: OK, well, finally, the downfall of Harvey Weinstein, richly merited and long overdue, proved a catalyst for a backlash against predatory and entitled men in many fields. One such was Kevin Spacey, and while it is difficult to scrape together much sympathy for him or any others hauled from their pedestals in such circumstances, his case did prompt a couple of further questions. One, does what we know about someone's personal life invalidate the obviously good work of a clearly talented individual? And two, do they deserve to to have their career ended. By way of test case, Billionaire Boys Club, Spacey's new film, which was shot before the allegations against him became public, will be released in August. Terry, first of all, are you less likely to go and see it than you otherwise might have been?
2: Er... I think I probably am. Yes. Um I mean, it's it's interesting with the the different approaches that people have taken to films or TV series with uh, Kevin Spacey in them. So House of Cards basically wrote him out of the next series. Um uh, in uh, the film All the Money in the World, they edited him out and literally replaced uh, Kevin Spacey with Christopher Plummer. Now apparently in this film he's one of like an ensemble cast with, you know, a whole load of other actors and he it's not, you know, purely him. Um I I think I probably am less likely to go and see it. I you know, I don't think you necessarily need to edit him out of everything that he's ever done and I would still probably watch quite a few of his old films, but I start to realize that Kevin Spacey often plays very similar characters, anyway, so you can almost kind of take it as read that the what the Kevin Spacey character uh, might be. But I think it's probably ultimately it's like going to be a financial calculation by the distributors rather than necessarily you know a moral one. And I imagine his diary from here on in, as you say, this was a film that was made a couple of years ago. Now I imagine his his future commitments are not looking all that heavy. Uh, uh,
0: well, indeed not. There, there are at least uh, fifteen complaints against Kevin Spacey, or at least complaints from fifteen different people. He has not, as yet been charged with any criminal offence, although there are people looking into that. Joy, does somebody in his position deserve to have their career actually ended? I'm not sure what I think about this.
1: Yes, no, I'm not sure either. I mean, I think the thing is, we, we mustn't be worried about Kevin Spacey being short of money, because there is quite a lot pouring into the coffers, so this idea that we are unemploying him as a society Fair for a point. while, uh, makes me feel a little less but guilty as, as, than as, somebody as, without him. As,
0: as a general rule, however...
1: Um, well, uh, the trouble is, I mean, it's, you, obviously you can't, um, it's it's um, innocent until proved guilty. The allegations against him are quite strong. They the are. allegations against uh, Weinstein, Weinstein were quite strong, uh, and we have been sort of quietly ignoring them for Decade. So I think he is going to have to just go through the mill on this, and again I think it's the judgment of society rather than necessarily the law that is going to put him on ice for a few years. Um, I think there's going to be an irony in this film, which is that um, it's the kind of no publicity is bad publicity because his name is going to keep coming up in relation to this film, which sounds kind of not that interesting <laughs> anyway. It will be in public attention, and people will then be curious and go and see it, and you'll actually see his box office. All the box office do relatively well. Uh, At which point they sort of say, well, there's no problem. Let's just get Spacey back in. And that's the point at which you have a kind of divide between culture and the cultural economy and what's going on in a law court, and then it could all get rather messy. I
0: mean, Terry, it it is an obvious point, which has been made before in these circumstances, uh, in that, I mean, everybody, I'm sure, listening to this, owns books or records or appreciates other great art, which is great art, which has nevertheless been created by thoroughly dreadful people. Um, Has it become harder now to separate the art from the artist? Do we just know too much for the art's own good about the people who make it?
2: Um, I think particularly with, it's slightly different with something like uh, film or theatre because the art, you can't make the art with other people. You could be a vile person in your personal life and make perhaps a beautiful painting or something. If you're making a film or theatre, you're working with other people, and these allegations, in the Weinstein case certainly, are about your colleagues and about the people you work with. And ultimately, if other actors actresses don't want to work will not work with you or directors will not work with you because they say you you need to treat other people that you work with decently then you are going to find yourself out of work and rightly so because you know if any of us were behaving appallingly in a way, the kind of way these allegations suggested then you know people, people wouldn't want to work with us anymore so I think you can't just put the art on the pedestal and say well you know people probably have got away with that too long the idea that you know you're more interesting you're creative and there are certain rules that apply to people in the creative world that, you know, we wouldn't accept in a, in a in a normal office and I think maybe that attitude has changed and people will hopefully turn around and say look, I'm either not working with this person or you can behave decently when you're around them.
0: Well, he does always have the op- option of running for president of course. That does bring <laughs> us to the end of today's show. Terry Stiasny and Joy Lodico. thank you for joining us at Midori House The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Amber Roberts, our studio manager it was David Stevens. Music next at 1900, it's The Entrepreneurs we'll have more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.